The first reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. It can be found on page 984 of your Bibles and on the screen in front of you. That's Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. It can be found on page 1180 of your Bibles. No confidence in the flesh. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Please keep that passage open in front of you, page 1180, Philippians chapter 3, where Paul begins the chapter finally, then goes on for another two chapters at least, which is good jet, isn't it? Because you've got a series of sermons on Philippians, which isn't ending today. Let's be quiet for a moment as we see God's blessing on us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to make him real in our lives today. And pray that through the same Spirit, you will speak to us from your word. For Jesus Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Two weeks ago, Jitesh asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? A train driver, of course, was my first thought. And who wouldn't want to be? Virgin Trains are offering 78 jobs and 15,000 people have applied for those 78 jobs. It can't be to do with the fact that they're offering £60,000 for driving a train for four days a week. Must be some other reason. Our daughter-in-law popped in on Monday and I said to her, are you doing anything exciting today? No, she said, I'm just writing my CV. I said, oh, you've given me an idea. And she looked at me slightly nonplussed. Most of us will have prepared a curriculum vitae at some stage in our lives where we've outlined all our qualifications, our list of degrees, the number of courses we've been on, our experiences, our abilities. And then we've looked at the personal qualities and tried to match our personal qualities in relation to the person's specification in relation to the job that we might be applying for. In effect, our CVs have been saying, look at us, look at me, look at what I've achieved, and this is the kind of person you're going to get. I always look at the job adverts in the Church Times on a Friday on, online, just as a matter of interest, and uh, there was one a couple of weeks ago where the pers- person spec said, wanted an outstanding individual. I didn't apply. <laughs> and I wondered whose ego that particular advert massaged. Perhaps it was the special one, or disastrous one if you're following my train of thought. I've got my spies in the place where this person's been appointed, so I shall find out <laughs> between now and Christmas and afterwards whether he is a special one. A friend of mine who's an experienced archdeacon always asks questions at interviews about areas that the person's not mentioned on their CV to find out who the real person is. Paul gave his CV, which I'll come back to in a moment. Let me just share with you uh, a few things about myself. I was baptised as a baby. I was expecting a baptism here today, but that was cancelled. And I got two at 11 o'clock at the Church of the Ascension in Subbington Avenue, so when I say finally, you will know that I've got to shoot off up there. So I was baptised as a baby, went to Sunday school, joined the choir at the age of about eight or nine, and then uh, 
was confirmed at the age of 13, having gone faithfully to church two or three times a day on a Sunday. I trained as a server at communion services rather than joining the adult choir, became a member of the youth club, and then became a member of the Crusaders Union, now known as Urban Saints. Later, I was a tent officer at Pathfinder Camp, graduating to be a leader, and then with Delia leading Cypher house parties, young people's house parties. And I was ordained as a minister in the Church of England and have served in several parishes and as a school chaplain and head of religious studies and here at St. Jude's as well. So that's, in a nutshell, is my religious CV. And in chapter 4, Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes his religious CV after stating as I said, finally, in verse 1. Had it been a baptism, I probably wouldn't have referred to this CV, but I think it's important for us just to see what Paul bases his CV on. He says, I've been circ- I was circumcised on the eighth day. Only a true Jew was circumcised on the eighth day. And I remember when I was teaching Judaism to first years at school, I would show them a, a DVD of a circumcision actually taking place. Until one day, there was a loud bang. (laughs) And we picked the boy up off the floor. (laughs) And Elf and Safety banned me from using the DVD. (laughs) Of the people of Israel, he says, he belonged to the chosen people, descended from the patriarch David, uh, sorry, patriarch Jacob, and his bloodline was so pure he could trace it all the way back. Of the tribe of Benjamin, he says, wow, the Benjamites were the aristocracy of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Saul, the first king of Israel, came from that particular tribe. That's great pedigree. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, the purest of the pure, born of Hebrew parents. And unlike many of his countrymen, could still speak the Hebrew language and was therefore a true Israelite. He was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the spiritual elite. Unlike many Pharisees, he wasn't born the son of a Pharisee, but became well-educated and attained to that position of being a Pharisee. He was zealous, and out of zeal for Judaism, he persecuted the church. No one was more committed than he to deny that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah and he was a bitter hater of Christians. Then, it speaks, then he speaks of being legalistically righteous. So strict was Paul that in his outward observance of the Old Testament law, he was found blameless, righteous, according to the law, in the judgment of humans, because he was perfect in relation to the law. As far as religious CVs are concerned, it's unbeatable. And if anyone could have confidence in his religious CV, it was Paul. If getting right with God was based on our efforts and what we do, then Paul had reason to be confident. Look at me. Look at my pedigree. Look at the things I've done. I'm an outstanding individual. He could well be the kind of person that would apply for that job I mentioned earlier. Rather like an accountant who looks at a balance sheet 
Paul sees all his good qualities, all his positive attributes in the credit column on the plus side. But there's only one problem. God's accountancy isn't like that at all. He doesn't see the way things, the way, he doesn't see things the way I did, says Paul in verse 7. Whatever I put in the credit column, I shifted across to the debit column because whatever my confidence, whatever I've achieved, whatever I've amassed, my confidence can't be in me and my achievements because that doesn't cut it with God. And as he transfers all this stuff in the, to loss column, he considers it loss. It's worth absolutely nothing compared with knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Paul says, I don't mind losing all the religious stuff for the sake of knowing the living Lord Jesus. Not knowing about him, but knowing the Lord Jesus in a personal way the surpassing worth of knowing him. And Paul's experience of coming to know Jesus was a dramatic one, often referred to by those who have no particular religious belief, but a kind of Damascus Road experience where a conversion took place and it changed Paul's life for good, so much so that he referred to it often in his letters. My religious CV that I praised earlier is of no value, it's worthless. It stands for nothing without my having come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in the quietness of a tent after a crusader meeting in a summer holiday when I invited Jesus to come into my life as my Lord, my Savior, and my friend. So I can say, as Paul said in verse eight, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, my Lord. Some of you here this morning will have experienced a kind of Damascus Road experience like St. Paul and had a dramatic experience of coming to faith in Christ. Others of us will have come to faith in Christ in a more gentle, gradual way and made a commitment to him at some point in our lives. Still others of you will have come to faith and know the surpassing worth of Jesus because you've never known anything other than faith through your lives. All of those experiences are valid, provided Jesus is of surpassing worth to us. Knowing Jesus in a personal way means knowing his presence, his guidance, and his strength. A thought popped into my mind, a song popped into my mind, uh, a hymn, rather, we used to sing, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It's not repetitive, it's not loud, it's not contemporary, but it speaks of biblical truth about the presence of Jesus. And someone said to me this week in my visiting, I'm dying but I'm going to be with Jesus. It's a tremendous privilege that we have as ministers to visit those who are in the last stages of their earthly pilgrimage and to be able to speak of the hope that Christ has set before us. 
she has the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And Paul says in verse 8, in effect, all the religious performance I once thought was to my credit is now just rubbish. It's a very strong word. It's not to do with the piles of rubbish left on the common by those who went to the victorious festival, mentioning no names of anyone here, or the earliest rubbish tip dating from the 4th century BC in Athens, or the rubbish that's taken away by the bin men on a weekly basis, or as I heard yesterday, if you live in Bury every three weeks, imagine waiting for your rubbish to be collected after three weeks. No, the word here comes from the root word excrement, and I'm not going to develop that thought at all. <laughs> and so Paul says that my identity is found in being a follower of Jesus Christ, a child of God who knows he's dearly loved. Everything else is rubbish. And now I'm in a right relationship with God, not because of the stack of things that I've got to my credit in my credit column, but only because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, who's loved me and died for me and come alive again for me. Our relationship with Jesus Christ gives us a sense of identity and shows us who we are and all that matters. When you know that you're loved by God, who created you, your whole perspective in life changes because you're in a living relationship with Jesus Christ and you don't have to impress anyone. A few months ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, discovered that Gavin Welby, who he thought was his father, wasn't his biological father because of a research done by a newspaper and a DNA test. And he made this memorably gracious statement to the press. In the last month, I've discovered that my biological father is not Gavin Welby. My own experience is, not, is typical of many people. To find that one's father is other than imagined is not unusual. To be the child of families with great difficulties in relationships with substance abuse or other matters is far too normal. And this is the key. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. And Paul, just like Justin Welby, reminds us that when we find out who we are in Jesus Christ, and realize our identity is found in our relationship with him, then that's all that matters, and that relationship lasts forever. I'm going to be with Jesus. We're secure for all time and eternity because of the confidence that we have anchored in Jesus Christ. So the question we're faced with today is this. Where are we putting our confidence? In our CVs? in our achievements, being a good, upstanding, respectable person. That's not what counts. I read in a newspaper a headline that says, I'm fearful for the future. And I read this interview with a soccer manager 
for whom I have a certain grudging regard for. As he approached his 67th birthday and 20 years at the same club. Known as the professor, he often says, I didn't see it, with a French accent, I can't do that. And he was asked if he was frightened of stopping and retiring. Yes, of course, because I'll miss what I love. Nobody lives a whole life by being motivated by the next game, stops suddenly and goes to church every day. I said that if God exists, one day I'll go up there and he will ask, do you want to come in? What have you done with your life? And the only answer I will have is, I tried to win football games. And he will say, is that all you've done? And the only answer I will have is, it's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> so the faithful, confident fans at that team that plays in North London somewhere put up a sign, in arson we trust. Well, Mr. Wenger, we've got some news for you, biblical news, that God exists and he won't be the least bit interested in your achievements in soccer, which are many, and I'm not decrying that at all. What do we put our trust in today? Some people will put their trust in the defence forces and living in a naval city, we're very grateful for the defence forces. Others in the police and the security services to keep us free from terrorists. Some will put their confidence in politicians I can't think of a point in my short life when confidence in politicians has been at such a low ebb. I heard a speaker at a Darston conference, a South African, who absent-mindedly said, when President Clinton's elected next November, in two days' time, he was predicting absent-mindedly. Well, she might yet be trumped, we don't know. Um, Sorry, it's going for a walk too early in the morning. <laughs> Gives me dreadful puns. Um, the Time magazine says the end is near. I think they're try out, trying to outdo Private Eye. What a moment in history, waking up as an American on Tuesday morning, and even worse, waking up on Wednesday and finding out who you voted for. We have confidence in, in our drivers. My two passengers were sound asleep as I was hurtling back round the M25 last Saturday evening. And I said to Mike, our vicar, who's on sabbatical, as you know, in the States at the moment, he told me he was going to drive from Los Angeles to New York. I said to him, Mike, I said, how are you going to do that? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, you got lost going to Cosham. <laughs> And the fact that he's now in uh, New Orleans uh, may be by mistake, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> Rachel clearly has confidence in his ability. Where is our confidence placed? As Christians, our confidence to face the future, which humanly speaking is all unknown, is in Jesus, who is the same today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. Why can we be confident in him? Because Jesus came to give us eternal life.
through his death and through his resurrection. He's come to set us free, to liberate us from the past, from shame and guilt, judgment, all our failures, our pride and our achievements, and all that will hold us back. And when we say yes to Jesus as Lord of our lives, then we discover who we really are, children of a loving Heavenly Father. Last week we heard the reading of Jesus telling the parable of the talents. And as I look round at the congregation, it's a multi-talented, very varied congregation in terms of our abilities and our skills. But the question is this, when we work for Jesus within the church, who do we rely on? When we go to work or our place of study, whom do we place our confidence in? Our own abilities or those that Jesus gives us? Our motto last year was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 3, oh, verse 10 rather, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Wow, think about it. The power of God which raised Jesus from the dead is the gift available to each of us every day to help us to be the kind of people he wants us to be, to lead us into the future, confident in him through the happiest moments in our lives and especially through the grimmest moments in our human experience. The world thinks that Christianity teaches that it's good people who go to heaven, but it's not. It's those who rely on Jesus and what he's done for them and not what they've done for him. Those who rely on the power of Jesus and not on their own strength. It's no use having a great CV or a religious CV because we can't depend on our own efforts being good enough. We can only receive the grace and mercy that Jesus offers as we come to know him and put our trust in him. Then we can be confident in him. I want to know Christ, says Paul. There's a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. You know that there's more evidence for the existence of Jesus of Nazareth than there is for the existence of Caesar Augustus, of Julius Caesar. That's just a, a fact, and people know that, but it's not about knowing Jesus. It's not using our intellect. It's about knowing him personally. It's not head knowledge. It's about the heart and the mind committed to him. One is religion. The other is a relationship. To know him means we've had a personal relationship with him. Last Sunday, we sang the words, In Christ alone, my hope is found. And some of my favorite words, All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I've counted loss, spent and worthless now, compared to this. A paraphrase of what Paul's been saying here in this passage. Knowing Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. And I began preparing today thinking of a baptism family. But as I say, it was cancelled. But it's still likely that there may be those in church today who don't yet have the assurance that Christ longs to give them 
or the confidence in him to face the future. If that's true, I hope that you will speak to someone before you leave church today. Paul not only thought he could get to God through the privileges of his birth, but also through the process of his religion. He discovered that he couldn't. But there may be others whose confidence in Christ has been dealt a blow through personal circumstances, who are really struggling with something in their life, and whose confidence needs reassurance. Again, speak to someone, pray with someone in the prayer ministry corner before you leave church today. God's grace is freely offered. It's available to us all, and we're all in need of his grace, hopefully hungry for more, as Paul was. God's gift of grace to us is in Jesus, and at the foot of the cross, we stand on level ground, regardless of our backgrounds, our achievements, with no CVs to offer, just our lives in his service. And to rephrase verse 3 slightly, we're those who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ, and who put no confidence in ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, our heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what we couldn't earn. Help us to know you and love you more and to be confident in all that you plan for our futures. For Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>